My conversation today is with Professor of Religious Studies and Theology at Stonehill College, Dr. Gregory Shaw. Dr. Shaw has been one of the foremost authorities on Neoplatonism and the ritual practice of mystical ascent termed theurgy, specifically as set forth by the 3rd and 4th century CE Neoplatonic philosopher Iamblichus of Chalcis. Iamblichus's primary theurgic writing on the mysteries is one of the central texts of the Western mystery traditions and of Neoplatonic philosophy. Dr. Shaw's commentary and exposition of this text, released in 1995 entitled Theurgy and the Soul, was and continues to be revolutionary. It has influenced an entirely new generation of researchers, scholars, and practitioners interested in Neoplatonism and theurgy. It was a humbling experience to talk with Dr. Shaw, but I was pleasantly surprised to find him to be affable and of somewhat more of a mystical inclination. This would certainly explain his profoundly penetrating insights into the world of Iamblichian theurgy and the Hellenistic mystical traditions of antiquity. I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. Uh, Dr. Gregory Shaw, thank you so much for being on tonight. Um, I've spoken with a lot of practitioners in in a lot of the circles I move in. Your work is regarded extremely highly. Um, so, Great. Uh, however, you know, I guess for the majority of people that are potentially listening to this, uh, I'm not 100% sure that they're all as well versed as the 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 many authors and and academics that I I talk to, such as yourself. So I'll probably um, I'll, pro- I'll probably not be at the highest level of discussion, but I'll try to mediate somewhere in between. All right, great. Uh, well, I tell me just a little bit about who you are, because um, I kind of like to get a feel for where you're coming from and and sure. what your interests are, so that we can really connect. Sure. So I'm a, <clears throat> I uh, I've been a practitioner in the Western ceremonial and, and esoteric traditions for. Uh, well, I mean, I've been studying these things for uh, almost 20 years, and uh, I've been okay. a, a practitioner for about 13, I want to mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I, I'm, I'm very, very interested in, in the academic discourse. I love Neoplatonism. Uh, the Platonic corpus is my home. I'm Greek uh, in terms of heritage. I've uh, I go to Greece as often as I can. I've visited the actual Academia uh, of uh, of Pla- Platono, you know, uh, of of Plato, and um, my my goal is to to really I'm finding a lot of great stuff in this in your work, in the work of uh, Algisus Davinis, and um, even even you know other scholars like Elaine Pagels really finding a lot of amazing stuff that just you know these are traditions that are that are extremely old and and well worked so my interest really lies there in in the, the underlying philosophies behind why we do what we do what we think we're doing and uh so my goal really is to talk to people like yourself uh that have access to this information not only on a physical level but i think at a at a much deeper level uh than 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 the average uh reader such as myself 
Okay. Well, it sounds like you're really into it and um, have a lot of commitment and um, you're getting a lot out of the work that you're doing. So, uh, and then you've got this podcast that where you interview different people who either they're into astrology or they do other different sorts of disciplines and you're at it, you're on it. So now you're on to me and I've agreed to be happy to talk to you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, a lot right. of a lot of people are excited to see uh, to listen to this. Uh, a few okay. people that I've spoken to, but I'm I'm wondering, um, <clears throat> have you always felt a pull professionally toward um, academic scholarship of this material, or was there ever an engagement with it that was that preceded your uh, your academic foray? Actually, I've had a pull uh, away from the academic. Uh, study of this material. I tend to find um, I've never really felt like I fit into the academic world, but I just was, um, that was my cover. Um, uh, I, I tend to find, uh, this sounds really snarky and probably not very generous, but um, uh, I think a lot of academics tend to be too much in their heads and, and um, don't take enough uh, existential risks and don't have as, as much um, full-hearted commitment to exploring things as I, as I do. And, um, but it was in the academic world where um, I, I realized that I could learn this material and then also make a living talking about this material. So it, it, it proved to be a good fit for me. Um, as my daughter said once when she was looking for jobs, uh, I made a mistake not realizing that um, you don't just do whatever you love the most, and that's your job, And because she wasn't getting that, looking for a job. And I love this material, and I was lucky enough to get a job where I could teach religious studies and end up talking about these themes in my classes and it's been good for me and I've, it's been a pleasure. Excellent. Um, and we're all benefiting thereby. Uh, but so on that tack, yeah. are you, um, are you actively engaged in any active spiritual sort of paths, whether that be, I don't know, something like yoga or, or pranayama meditation? Uh, you know, I, not doing much in that regard. Like I, you say you're doing practice for the last 13 years. And I suspect that means you do some sort of ritual practice. And um, I used to do a lot of yoga and meditation when I was much younger, for hours and hours a day, and spent a lot of time in a semi-trance state, you could say, um, because that's what I wanted to feel. Um, and I eventually... Um, I guess I felt like eventually that that was kind of a trap. So uh, in the meantime, then I became an academic. Um, I still meditate. Um, meditation, I think, is a great practice. Um, I think letting go of the busyness of our thinking um, and, and just being in a receptive state is, is, is a very good practice. Um, apart from that, I do... Um, pretty intense physical exercise several times a week to kind of to clear my head and stay sane. Um, and I love uh, 
reading and writing about uh, Iamblichus and Neoplatonism. And in a way, that's my practice. The, uh, the scholarship is a kind of ritual practice that puts me into a deep state. And um, I, I lose track of time and I just, you know, it carries itself. So maybe that's my ritual practice, uh, the scholarship. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think that idea of trance states and, um, you know, in, in terms of it's, it sounds like you were putting in several hours of that, which, um, I was. you know, your, your idea of, you know, it, it be eventually seeming as a trap to you. To me, that sounds very Iamblichian, you know, this idea that we have to be here too. <laughs> right. In fact, I've subsequently, uh, about the time I moved out of my um, trance life and, and completely celibate life and living like an angel, although I was in a human body, you know, that kind of life, I was living that kind of life. And I came to realize that's not enough. Um, I need to get off, you know, as awful as it seemed at the time, in relationships with people, uh, romantic relationships, which were guaranteed to mess me up, to really um, cause me to be unsettled, and you know, and they still do. Um, but but that's part of what it is to be a human being. And and I realized it's not about getting to the top of the tree and looking down. It's like coming down into the roots and being with the whole earth. And that includes all the dirt and all the messiness of our existence. And about the time that I realized that, I discovered Iamblichus. And um, he not only explained to me what was going on for me uh, phenomenologically and in terms of my experience of doing certain chanting, um, he explained it perfectly. And uh, then he also talked about being in the body. And we don't need to pretend that we're never down here because we are down here. So it was a, it was a good time to discover him for me. And then I started to write my PhD thesis on his work. So, and I, yeah. I've been writing a lot of articles about him since then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like there's a fair bit of synchronicity there uh, to use a Jungian term, but uh I recall reading uh, something that you wrote in a journal of esotericism called Alexandria. It was a, it was a rather short. I remember article. that. Yeah. 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 I think it was called embodying the stars. And yes. Right. It was one of the first times it really hit me. As you're saying, where Iamblichus kind of speaks to you and then is in some way through the ages, even through, through yourself, right. Uh, as the vehicle of his writing is describing your experience um and and it was really interesting the the thing that hit me the most kind of hit me in the gut a little bit because there is so much of this ascension motif in in a lot of particularly you know the spiritual the spiritual um uh milieu that has been commoditized in the west uh yeah yeah he says that the 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 soul can be no more than than an intermediary Really, right. so it's not supposed to always be, you know, totally ascended. It's it has that that continual unfortunate struggle of being in the middle. Well, not only that, I believe that he's right, and I think that when people think that they have ascended, it's a self deception, and in fact, they haven't gotten anywhere. 
And they're failing to do even the minimal amount of mediation of the higher into the lower. Uh, instead of dealing with the, the crap of the lower and learning how to mediate with that, they've, they've turned off to the lower. They've shut their eyes, they've shut their ears, and they go numb, which I don't think. And I think there's a lot of spiritual practices that do that and encourage that, along with the mm, added notion or the feeling that that, that makes you better than um, as if not getting pissed off means that you're better than uh, the people who do get pissed off or, you know, we're, we're in this world and it's learning how to engage the energies of this world. Um, but um, I don't know how I got onto that, but um, you were, you were talking about um, that Iamblichus reminds you that we have to mediate. And yeah, I think you're right. That I think that's a real great insight that he had. And actually, as as much as sometimes I criticize the way that people have interpreted Plotinus as a way of escaping from this world, my guess is that Plotinus himself was mediating big time and that he was doing the things that Iamblichus would have encouraged anyone to do, but he might have just explained it in a different way. Right. And I think that in terms of um, Plotinus's um description of of the psyche or the soul it tended to to sound more dualist dualistic than what Iamblichus's uh descriptions were didn't mean right. to get off yeah. on a tangent there but yeah. no that's great that's great because yeah. uh you know another point was was that I was thinking of was you know you describing which which is kind of it can be kind of controversial to to some some people uh Describing Plotinus as a kind of theurgist, which is yeah. very, it's a very interesting notion to me, yeah, because the, the the core that they stemmed from was neo was Platonic thought. Yes, for sure, they were all Platonists, and they they um, continue to think of themselves as that. One of the um, the people who got me onto thinking of Plotinus as practicing a kind of um, theurgic ritual, a kind of noetic theurgy was uh, Sarah Rapp, who is, I think, one of the most brilliant um, uh, scholars of Neoplatonism, who also gets it in terms of the existential power of what is going on. I, I would recommend that anybody read her work. Reading Neoplatonism is just a phenomenally great book. And then there was a scholar, a friend of mine named Zeke Mazur, who wrote a couple of articles about Plotinus doing a kind of um, uh, noetic theurgy with this visualization of the sphere and and then then take everything out of it and that's and he he basically gives you instructions of what to do in a visualization which is a ritual um, and so there's an argument to be made for for Plotinus having a kind of theurgic dimension to him right. I wrote about that too once. Yeah. 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 I've I've got a bunch of your papers. It's it's really great. Um, there's some stuff on academia.com or org. I, I oh yeah, academia.edu. It's a it's a pretty useful source. And I try to um upload as many of my things as I can on there. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff I really think are good articles. I you know, I look at them, I think, wow, that was a good one, you know. Um so I yeah, there's a lot of my stuff on there. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was, and, and it's, it's great too. There's, there's a lot of, you can get, you can get into a lot of nuance as well. I was, I was reading a paper recently that you wrote on uh sort of um, Iamblichus's thoughts on, on astrology, right? Because this astrology is becoming extremely popular once again. I mean, it's, it's huge. And um, it's just so funny because you have somebody like Iamblichus who even back then was kind of saying like, you know, these, these people who are attempting to tell the future are kind of missing the point. And it made me think, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I know. And, and Ficino uh, basically was in agreement with the Amblicus about that, Um, that astrology for Amblicus was a way of intuning yourself to the higher levels of awareness um, and not about predicting the future um, or determining things in the kind of um, almost materialistic way that it's practiced by some people today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And along, along that tack actually of, of, of the, uh, this idea of, of, you know, burgeoning esoteric sciences, there is a real uptick in, in interest in Neoplatonism uh, right now and Neoplatonic sort of related philosophies, hermeticism and things like that. And knowing now that, that you're kind of from the horse's mouth, you know, so to speak, you're, you're a little bit more on the, uh, or, or I would say less mired in the the strictly academic rationalist perspective. Do you have any thoughts as to why that might be occurring at this juncture? Well, by by this occurring, do you mean that people are getting mired in the rationalistic approach or getting released from it? Well, Which, I would say- What are you talking about? I would say released. I would say, what, what, what do you think are the underlying causes for so many people all of a sudden getting so interested in Neoplatonism? Oh, well, hmm. Huh. Well, we're living in a culture that, that really um, doesn't provide much depth of meaning in general for us. Um, I think traditional religions- um, I used to have a kind of a critical view of them, but I increasingly have more and more respect for them in that they give people a ground and a way of engaging their depth. But I think that to the degree that we're rational and we're intellectual, the Neoplatonists took all of that rational capacity that we have and found a way to weave it into a deeper vision uh, that doesn't leave us separated from depth. And a lot of intellectuals today, or rationalists, using a scientific materialistic model, don't have any interest in depth because they don't believe in it. Um, but the Neoplatonists were able to take our rationality and, and lead us to something that was deeper than rationality by the very practice of their rationality. I think that's one of the appeals of Neoplatonism, that you don't have to become non-rational to be a Neoplatonist, but by being a Neoplatonist, you realize that your rationality leads to something more profound than your rationality. Um, there was um, it's an anthropologist named Obeye Sekere, I think, um, uh, a, a fellow that I know and like a lot named Jeff Kripo quotes him and, and it's written about him. And he says that um, conceptual rational language is not a really good vehicle for visionary thought. Uh, To really grasp deep visionary thinking, 
you have to go beyond a kind of, I'm going to analyze it and explain it and say, well, he used that term, therefore he was influenced by that stream of thought. And that's not the best way to study Neoplatonism. But but your question was, why are people attracted to Neoplatonism? I didn't realize that they are that attracted to it, but you're saying that your sense is that they are? Yeah, you know, I think it's penetrated the mainstream much more than I was ever aware of it. Now, part of that could be a product of my own sort of coming into that. I gravitated much towards the much more towards the Platonic corpus just because that's what I had I had read. You know, Plato was always front and center. Right. Uh, and now there is, you know, there are a number of uh well, for instance, about uh, maybe like a month or two ago, there was this massive collaboration between uh, some of the top, I guess, you, yeah, I mean, they're self-identified sort of uh, scholarly YouTubers, including like John Vervicky and and uh, a couple of others, um, Dan Attrell. They did this huge uh, sort of collaboration on Neoplatonism and... Uh, you know, I'm reading more and more, um, I'm, I'm meeting more and more authors who are writing books on theurgy, like proper theurgy, you know, like Iamblichian, uh, or at least their interpretation of it, right? Because we don't necessarily have exactly what, what he was doing uh, mm -hmm. to any measure. But yeah, I, I've, I've found that that is a spiritual path. I mean, my, my own thoughts on it are, I, I hadn't summed them up, but now that you've said what you said, I kind of it's striking a chord inside of me, this idea that, yeah, you know, I, I want to retain my rationality. I don't want to yeah. be one of those people who, you know, and it's not to criticize, just not my bag. I don't want to be one of those people who doesn't have any foundation other than, oh, I saw somebody doing this on YouTube. So I, I like the idea of tra traditions that have been well-worn. Right. Right. You can read it. I mean, that's one of the things I like about, Having learned Greek, um, I'm, I'm just finishing a book um, on Iamblichus um, called Hellenic Tantra, which is a comparison between um, Iamblichian theurgy and South Asian Tantra. And, and I think that, I, I believe that by comparing theurgy to South Asian Tantra, we might have a better way of understanding what the theurgists were doing rather than trying to impose a kind of dualist escape from the world model that um, doesn't include the embodied experience of, of what the theurgists were doing. And in doing this though, um, you know, I had to check some Greek texts, you know, commentaries that, that somebody's written on Aristotle's categories and what a freaking obscure shit like that. But Getting immersed in the texts themselves grounds me a little bit and makes allows me to have a voice that has a little bit more resonance when I write about it. At least I feel that way. And um, hopefully that's how it comes across. But absolutely. But knowing, knowing, you know, learning a, a language like the uh attic. Attic Greek, it's a real discipline. It takes a lot of work to learn it. Um, and it's good for the mind because it's a subtle language. And Plato was a master at it. Um, so, yeah, I'm not one of these people that wants to watch YouTube and say, hey, baby, it's all one. 
you know, just, just, let's just flow with that. I mean, I, those are okay people. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And that's, that's a good way for some people, but it's not my way. Yeah. I, I definitely understand that. I, I, I don't read uh, ancient Greek. I speak modern Greek, um, well, that's which cool. is, which is totally, well, I had to teach myself also because I didn't learn from a parent. So it's been very hard. I'm not, I'm kind of bashful. My, my accent isn't great. But since we're kind of going that way, okay. I, I did, you know, I read Thomas Taylor's translation of yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on the mysteries. And I found it to be abstruse. And I think part of the reason is the Greek and part of the reason is it's, you know, uh, 18th century English or whatever. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, That's basically the reason I think it's his 18th century English. Right, the, the mean, style of speaking in those days. Yeah, yeah. It, I really had to beat my head on it, you know, over and over, and, and then eventually somebody told me about your book, Theurgy and the uh, uh, and the and the Soul, and it, it, it that helped tremendously. But okay. there there are certain words, like you're saying, yeah. that are so they're used so uh, they're just overused in in the text at least in the translation, but they have a very ambiguous meaning, like uh, energy. You know, I understand the Greek is uh, energia. Um, it's it, it kind of, it's reminiscent of the word virtue and like Agrippa's three philosophies. It's all over, but nobody really, very few people understand what it means. So, you know, there's other words that Taylor translates as genera and things like that. And I had a lot, I had a really hard time parsing the text, uh, surprisingly so, believe it or not. Um, so, I mean, how do you, how, 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 do you have like a stronger hold on those types of obscure words that get a lot of usage? Yeah, well, stronghold, I'm, I'm not sure I would describe it that way, but let me just say first about Thomas Taylor. Um, I bowed down to the man. Um, he, he did it all. He, you know, he was a bank clerk or something. He translated everything. And um, he was courageous. And um, he woke me up to, to what these Neoplatonists were doing. I had no idea that Plato was as interesting as, as he is until Taylor's translation of the Neoplatonist commentaries on Plato allowed me to realize that they they were able to see all kinds of deep levels of the soul. Um, and, and Taylor helped me that way. Subsequently, uh, when I went to Paris to study with uh, um, some uh, Neoplatonic scholars, uh, Jean Triard and, and Henry Safre, Safre, who is one of the, was one of the premier uh, scholars in the world of Neoplatonism, uh, leaned over to me and he said, he knew, Thomas Taylor knew. His Greek was good. He knew. So in other words, it may be kind of 18th century, a little bit uncomfortable for us, but his, his knowledge of the Greek was good, even if he uses terms that might seem that we'd want to sort of revise. And in terms of how some of the terms that we see over and over again in the Greek, like energeia or um that's that's not a bad one to choose. Uh, you were mentioning vir virtue in Agrippa. Sometimes the vagueness is is actually not such a bad thing, because it can mean different things in a different context. Um, but um, good to know how it's functioning. 
in the context that it's being used. Um, like some terms, I, I have a, more of a firm grip on like synthema or synthemata, which are kind of the tokens of, of the divine that are in this world if we know how to see them and access them. Um, that's useful to know, you know, because that's an important idea for Iamblichian theurgy, to know that there are synthemata seeded into the world in order to sort of wake us up if we have the eyes to sort of take them in. Um, but I, maybe I'm not really picking up on what you're asking me about terms. So um, Yeah, I mean, th- no, it's, it's, I guess it's just, um, I think that's definitely uh, apropos. I, I guess my, my, my question is more to express, I guess, a general confusion and uh, t- towards what qualitative distinctions those words are, are, are attempting to make. Uh, and if that's, you know, just me or if like, do you find that that's a, that's a common thing that, that has to get parsed out? I, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. So maybe you could be a little bit more specific and I can respond to what you mean. Sure. I mean, so, so essentially like the word in, I guess, again, as you're saying, the ambiguity is there for a reason in some sense, but like when, when Amblichus refers to the energy of the gods, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. what do you take that to mean necessarily? I mean, it's hard to, it's a hard question to ask because it's a very vague thing just in general. Okay. So I, I can get a little specific about the response to that. Um, you know, it seems that Iamblichus picked up a lot of, of um, Aristotelian language to, to make sense of his engagement with the gods. And he talked about their usia, which is their essence, their dunamis, which is their power, and their energeia, which is their activity. So, you know, what do you, how, do, how are they acting? How are they manifesting? And, and you can tell what God it is and, and what level you're dealing with by the energeia, by the activity that you're encountering. And that's one of his methods for discerning what sort of spirit you're encountering in, I'll call it the imaginal world, to use a Jungian term for it, which I don't think is inappropriate. Um, so, Energeia is the activity part of of some sort of being, um, including a human being. Um, there's the essence, the 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 dunamis, the power and potentiality, and then the manifestation of it, the energeia. So that's sort of like the final expression of it. But right. it's not it's not separated from the essence or or the or the power. It's just the way it expresses itself in action. So that's kind of how I understand Enerdea. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's tremendous for me, actually. So I, I appreciate that. That's okay. uh, it definitely clarifies exactly because it was really that word was my sticking point. In- I think that in, you know, in that first book that I think you said you read theurgy and the soul. Yeah. Um, somewhere in there. Um, I, I go into that. To, to some degree, the um, usia energeia, the usia dunamis energeia um, triad, uh, you could say, of how divine beings express themselves. And I'm trying to think of where that was. Um, yeah, uh, I think what 78, 79, uh, 90, no, 98, 99, the energeia reveals the usia. 
Um, it depends which copy you have. If you have the old one, it's ninety eight ninety nine. That the new one, it's a little different. And okay, but just you could look up it in the index. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, another kind of a, a, another sticking point that I had, or point of confusion, and this one comes more from this, uh, I guess, sort of a, a, a perceived conflict between the platonic yeah. uh, idea of a daimon. Uh, specific specifically from the platonic corpus book 10 of the republic at the end mm -hmm. of it you know plato kind of goes into his very fascinating near-death experience uh right uh, of the myth of ur and they talk about how okay you you've chosen a diamond and you get kind of it goes through this this sort of karmic interweaving of the soul and the diamond and the spheres of causality and uh you know when you when you kind of traverse, uh, you know, more of the Platonic thought and the, the, the late Platonic thought, Neoplatonic thought, there's kind of two diamonds, you know, the, the Agathos diamond, the beneficial diamond and the, the Kako diamond, the, the, uh, I would say malefic or, or, or bad diamond. So it, how did, how did, um, Iamblichus conceive of, the role of the daimon or the daimones in his theurgy as you understand it. Like, how do we reconcile those, those ideas in Iamblichus? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry. I just took a bite of my candy bar, but I need some energy. Um, <laughs> Energia. Right. Um, the daimones, Iamblichus says, are the um, kind of the builders of the world. They bring things into concrete manifestation. They draw the soul into our bodies, into our desires and our impulses. They make the um, they make people like Donald Trump want to build a Trump Tower. They make me want to, you know, um, achieve some sort of success in my uh, particular field. Um, they make things be what they are physically in this world. They they draw things out. They attach us to the world. So in that sense daimons kind of trap us because they're supposed to bring out the divine energy of the gods that create the world and bring them into manifestation which includes our being glued to to these things because that's what makes things alive so in one sense they they kind of trap us oh and i think that one of the things that needs to be done at least according to iamblichus is to work with these daimons to see how they draw us out and to honor that energy. And by honoring the energy um, in the right way, we don't resist it um, and we accept it. And by accepting it, not resisting it, we become free from its constraint. Um, and that, that we can move eventually from having, um, well, Iamblichus says that each of us also has a particular daimon that guides our life, which is what you were talking about with the a myth of Ur and going coming down into the world. Um, it's sort of your fate, you know, it, 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 how you're supposed to live your world. But if you fulfill all of those daimonic drives that you're you're um, born to to achieve and, and live out. Then Iamblichus says you no longer have a daimon as your overseer, but a god. And the daimons particularize things. A god is more of a whole. So that insofar as you're, it's wonderful to be 
guided by a daimon and fulfilling your 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 calling um but eventually if you do that then you're you come you come under the sort of the influence of something greater and more than just daimonic they even say that plotinus um in that spell that was done on him in the isis temple in alexandria showed that he didn't just have a daimon as a guide but a god which you know was a pretty powerful kind of way to talk about his level of spiritual attainment yeah um but diamonds are all over the place i mean people have written about them and spoken about them in the ancient world in so many different ways and iamblichus tends not to talk much about the evil diamond the kakos diamond right and um and i haven't either um and i'm not sure if if I would want to literalize it as an entity that has an evil influence on us, or rather to interpret it as our own psychological ineptitude of living out our daimonic calling, and that therefore turning something that might be naturally good into something not good because of our own orientation. I'm not certain. I, I tend not to objectify the kakos daimon. Right. Yeah, and Maybe. There's, there's kind of a platonic, uh, uh, I guess, correlation there. I think it's I think it's in the Phaedrus when Socrates is describing the charioteer, and mm -hmm. he ride he rides a horse, one white and one dark, mm -hmm. and the white one, you know, they're always pulling in opposite directions, and his job wow. is to be able to sort of uh, maintain equilibrium, which to me is you know resting power from these things, establishing yourself as the locus of 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 control in that way against those two forces pulling in opposite directions yeah but it's without that dark horse we wouldn't be here right <laughs> um i think it was um uh i remember a friend of mine told me that, it, that william blake said um you go to form for uh you go to heaven for form and you go to hell for energy um which I thought that was a very poetic way of talking about those two horses. You know, there's the form, order, the Apollonic, and then there's the energy, which is the hell, maybe the Dionysian, the embodied, the, the orgiastic. And we need both. Um, and without, without the one, uh, the form becomes desiccated and dried up. And without the form, the orgiastic just becomes a mess. Mm. and um dissolute and um self-destructive we need right. both we need both yeah i think that's a beautiful insight very poetic way to put it and it's, it's i can definitely say it, it it resonates with me that idea of of going to quote unquote hell for energy you know <laughs> yeah it's kind of a scary term to use but um i get the sense of it it's um we're afraid of it you know yeah. it's um and that's the Dionysian. You know, when you resist uh, Dionysus, um, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Um, which is what uh, Euripides is writing about with the uh, Bakoi, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, these are very, very, I mean, profound things in the traditional meaning of that word, deep. You know, there's a lot of a lot of depth to them. And I, I know that the... the I, I, I want to say something. Yeah. I think this is why people are attracted to Neoplatonism in the Greek tradition because we human beings wonder what the hell's going on? Why are we here? 
Why do we feel the things we feel? And there are some very brilliant human beings that articulated this in poetry, in literature, in, in, um, in drama, in philosophy. And, and if we just, and we have the opportunity to learn about these things, um, unfortunately in, in colleges these days, they're not emphasizing that those traditions very much. Um, they're being ignored to some degree. And I think part of the reason they're being ignored is that we academics have tuned out. We're not, we're not open enough to um, the existential um, reason why people have even written about these things and, and reflected on them, that, that we just think it's information that we can manage and control and then show that we know it and then, you know, get some, some praise for, for knowing this or that. And it's not about that. It's about transformation of the psyche. That's what all of these people were involved in. And that's what I think people deeply want. Um, whether we're conscious of it or not, people want that. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting, actually, the, 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 the parallels to that, I guess, what you would call the, the meaning crisis. And then yeah. going back to this idea that these people kind of, you know, they didn't really, these are people that did not distract themselves. They, they confronted these intellectual issues and they, they wrestled with them they chewed on them they worked them out uh to the best that they could and um i think that that, that the active spiritual path too the, the, people are getting very interested in what could possibly have been the theurgic rites and the the you know the rites of elevation and things like that and and really digging in to try and find this stuff but i mean in your estimation this is a this is a, a broad question, but I'm yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm genuinely interested. Do you think that theurgy can be I'm listening to you? I'm I'm thinking about a quotation. Keep talking. Sure, yeah. Do you think that theurgy can be reconstructed to any meaningful degree in like the modern day? Yes. I do. I think that depending on how one looks at theurgy, um to the degree that when people engage in, in ritual life, something greater than themselves is being expressed and communicated with them, and they're lifted by it, I think that is theurgic. Um, I remember um, there's a couple of there was a, a group in San Francisco called the Open Source um, uh, Golden Dawn Group. And, and they understood that what they were doing were, was theurgic ritual. And I met them, talked to them, and I thought, yeah, I think that that makes sense. Um, then one time I was in um, Dalhousie uh, in Nova Scotia, and there was a um, <clears throat> an Episcopal priest in the audience. And I said that to some degree, you could see there's some influence of theurgy on uh, Christian ritual. And he and Roy raised a question at the end of it, and he was he was really stirred up and pissed off. He said, "You said there might be some degree." He said, "It is theurgy. How how dare you suggest that it might even be a little bit? It is completely theurgic." 
And and so I, I was delighted that that's how he interpreted his own tradition. And I think that it's there already. Um, when people intone certain prayers and those prayers move them in a way that's more than just their intellectual kind of grasp, but, but they're literally moved by it. That's theurgic. And so really, when we're using the term theurgy, we're partly using a way of making sense of ritual that may be already in the culture. Now, are there specific Iamblichian theurgic rites that we could reproduce, like looking at the Greek magical papyri and trying to come up with certain vowel sounds? And um, I suppose that could be done too. But some of that stuff almost strikes me as um, artificial. And um, I'm a little bit wary of that. Um, but that may just because I'm a little bit conservative. I I grew up in Nebraska and, um, you know, Nebraskans kind of are very suspicious of anybody who bullshits about anything. Um, <laughs> and so, I, you know, if somebody does something, I want it to feel authentic. And um, we don't have to try too hard. A lot of this stuff's already there. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I see, I see a lot of people. Well, first of all, I, I'll say this. No, my, my tradition is, is the hermetic order of the golden dawn. That's kind of the, the tradition that I came up in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, not through the open source. I, I appreciate their work quite a bit before I joined the actual, um, you know, uh, Cicero lineage of, of, of that or iteration of that order. I spent a lot of time uh, on the open source order of the golden dawn. I really liked it. But really, I mean, even at its outset, the earliest foundational papers from the 1800s, they were calling this theurgia. You know, yeah, they, they, sure. they, they really, even the founders considered it uh, theurgy. And, you know, you see a lot of, a lot of that gets washed out in, in modern, uh, modern practice. I'm very glad to, to know that it, you know, it, it still holds true in the open source order. Um, but uh, there's sometimes, you know, there's, there is this pull towards the, the desire for ritual, but I, I think a lot of us, as we were kind of touching on before, are interested in this idea of the transmutation of the psyche, you know, the psyche, which in, in Greek meant soul, obviously. Uh, and I, I think we we're talking about the Greek magical papyri. So Dr. Stephen Skinner, he kind of points out in, he wrote a book, about the Greek magical papyri called uh, Techniques of Greco-Egyptian Magic. And one of the first things he does is points out that in, in Hellenistic times, magic wasn't synonymous with theurgy. Magic was like something, it's a spell, it was a technique. It was a, it was a technology used to get a chicken bone out of your throat, you know, or something like that. Whereas you had, um, you had the mysteries which which you know embodied things like uh like theurgy and you were actually trying to do uh spiritual things and and transformation and i i see that that is i mean people are hungry for that and i think that's another reason why there there are people out there attempting to to reconstruct iamblichian theurgy well good for them and and um you know i hope they they get some really great intuitions and inspiration um for that. Um, uh, I think there is a difference. Iamblichus was very concerned about making a distinction between what he called magic at the time, um, goiteia, and uh, theorgia. And 
the distinction is basically, here's what it is, I believe, and I, I tried to summarize this recently. When Iamblichus says that you perform a, a theurgic rite, you say, um, chant certain sounds that have these divine energies in them so that you become united with the sounds which are the presence of the deity. So as he puts it, you take on the shape of the gods. Okay. And, and it's really not about you or you personally, but you personally have sort of been uh, become empty and a receptacle to take on this shape. The magician, on the other hand, seems to in, uh, chant these sounds and spells to make the gods or those energies take on his shape or her shape. Um, and so it's about an inflation of the personal and the particular instead of a, a fitting the particular and the personal into the greater order. So magic is like the um, reverse of theurgy in the sense that it inflates the particular, pretending that it's universal, as opposed to fitting the particular into the universal. Um, and I also think that the part of the, <clears throat> the strength of Iamblichus there is that he's got the Platonic tradition behind him, where you've got Socrates, who represents somebody who was able to strip people of their own egocentric senses of, oh, I know this, I know that. And he shows them that they don't know. And not knowing is probably the hardest thing I think for us to to deal with, to really be not reactive and not grasping, but just not knowing, and not knowing state, which Iamblichus calls udenia, nothingness, that's necessary in order to receive the gods. So, in order to to get the highest, we have to accept the lowest in us, and I think that there's a tendency among some who are attracted to magic who see it as a way of elevating their personal importance. And um, that's that's the problem, I think, with with some, the way that some people practice so-called magic. Not that there were, not that everybody who did the magical papyri were like that, but some of them might have been, you know? Yeah. And, and the evidence seems to suggest that some of them were. Yeah. So, I might have spoken a little bit longer about that than you were intending me to, but yeah, I have a feeling about a uh, distinction about that. And it was important to Iamblichus. He was really hard on magic. He, he, he saw it as a really bad thing. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the, I think that's such a super important distinction to be made because magic, you know, historically the Western esoteric traditions of magic were brought to present day through the hermetic order of the golden dawn mm -hmm. um and the thing is that there is this conflation between the magic and the the theurgy right the theurgy is once you get to the quote-unquote inner order the theurgy is emptying yourself so that something can sort of in ab abide there that is higher than you and yes, there's, yes. There's a very hermetic idea in of the quote unquote outer order of rectifying the sphere of sensation, which is, you know, the microcosm, making the microcosm a more perfect reflection of the macrocosm. And I think you pointed out uh, in, in several things that you've written that that is yeah. a, that is a deeply platonic idea from the, the Timaeus. Oh, it is. It's, it's definitely right out of the Timaeus. And um, the whole purpose of Platonism was to align your 
particularity or microcosm with the macrocosm. That's standard Platonism. And um, that's that, that article you said you read in um, that journal about embodying the stars. That's aligning the microcosm with the macrocosm. Um, and then I basically, I think that, that um, Iamblichus, the, the reason that he seemed to be controversial maybe to, to some degree back then, as well as now, is that he believed that people were over-intellectualizing the process and that he wanted to make sure that, it that we weren't steering the ship, that we were being receptive to something greater than us. Um, and you had to be pretty smart to know how not to try to steer the ship. You know, it does take some, some reflection, but um, it's, it's that, that kind of, um, how would I put it, um, vanity of thinking that we're in charge uh, that he was concerned about and says, no, no, we don't do it. You can't think your way to the divine. And then when scholars encountered him in the late 19th and early 20th century, they said, well, he's just gotten, you know, he's lost the platonic tradition, which we know is all about developing our rationality and being able to explain things and progressing and blah, blah, blah. And, and the Amplicus is making us primitive again. Exactly. We need to learn how to be primitive again um, in the right way. Um, I think that's what it's about. Um, and there's somebody who, um, whose work I admire a great deal, who's also tuned into that, Peter Kingsley, who, mm. who, who has written over and over again how he actually um, doesn't like Plato that much because he thinks Plato over-intellectualized a shamanic tradition that he received from Parmenides and Empedocles, and he, he made it a head game, and we've been lost in all of that heady stuff for a long time. Um, I think Iamblichus was saying, no, we don't want to play the head game. It's We have to be willing to receive something deeper and more primitive, even though we might be embarrassing for the ego to accept that. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's why he's controversial to some degree, because people don't want to think that that there's anything greater than our than our rationality. Yeah, that is, I think, a uh, a brilliant final thought. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, all right, cool. It's a powerful message uh, to go out on. It's very tricky to talk about these things in in these communities, as I'm sure you're more well aware than I am. But people don't always want to hear that. But at, at the end of the day, you that that is something I think that if you traverse the quote unquote you know theurgic path, philosophical path for long enough, you realize that the 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 protagonist of every one of Plato's dialogues claimed that he was he he only knew that he knew nothing oh that's socrates yeah. yeah right right exactly although he did say he knew one thing things that had to do with eros hmm. ta erotica and and i thought i think that's a very telling thing that that it's the desire that longing um i think longing is a good way to talk about it that hunger for something deeper we're born with it Mm. And that's what he says he understands. Beautiful. Yeah. That's All right. great. So I, I really appreciate you, Dr. Gregory Shaw. Thank you so much for, uh, for being on the podcast and just taking time out of your day to talk to me.